so hard to articulate the ways in which time creep up when it comes to loss. But there, there's not this sense that grief neatly tapers away over time. The, the, this is this myth that we love and it's prosaic, and, but it's not true, I don't think. At least it hasn't been for me. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast series, where we bring you fascinating and important conversations prompted by local literature. I'm Fasti Karlitz, and I'll be listening to these conversations with you. In today's episode, which we've called Afterlife, Bongani Corner and Yowande Omotoso are in conversation with Catherine Bull, and they're talking about shifting modes of grief. Catherine is a writer, researcher, and podcaster who makes the ICA podcast. That's the Institute of Creative Arts. Bungani is a writer, editor, and co-curator of the Archive of Forgetfulness podcast and has previously been shortlisted for the Kane Prize. He is the editor of Our Ghosts Were Once People, published earlier this year, which is a collection of writings and other works about death and dying, including essays, poetry, and photos. And I should mention that Catherine also has an essay in this collection. Yowande Omotoso is a writer from Barbados and Nigeria who now lives in Johannesburg. Her previous novels are Bomb Boy and The Woman Next Door. Her most recent novel, An Unusual Grief, is about a woman, Majisola, whose daughter Yinka has recently passed away. As she seeks to get to know her daughter after her death, she inadvertently ends up on a journey of self-discovery and pleasure. An Unusual Grief is not out yet, but the book lounge is currently running a pre-order special. More about that after the conversation. This is a gentle and nourishing conversation about the different forms that grief takes, about what it means to sit with grief, how it warps time, how grief is unevenly granted to different people, and whether something good can come from loss. Here it is. Welcome, listeners, to the Open Book Podcast. My name is Catherine Bull, and I'm joined today, not quite in studio, but across virtual studios, by two remarkable writers to talk about their profoundly moving books that deal with the themes of loss and grief. And the first book that we're going to be speaking about is the novel An Unusual Grief, written by the brilliant Yewande Omotoso. Yewande, it's wonderful to be with you today. How, how are you doing? Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for the warm welcome. And uh, I'm good. I'm happy to be here engaging with both you and Bongani. Wonderful. And listeners should know that An Unusual Grief hasn't been published yet, but it will be out very soon. Is that fair to say very soon? Yes, very soon. In, it, it should be out in December. Okay, okay. That is indeed very soon. And the second book that we are discussing in this episode is the exquisitely crafted anthology called Our Ghosts Were Once People, Stories on Death and Dying, which was published in August this year and edited by the equally brilliant Bongani Corner. And it's really good to see you too. Bongani, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, thank you for the generous introduction, Catherine. I'm doing good and yeah, glad to be here as well. And yeah, hello to Yawande as well. So glad to be here. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's such a delight and a privilege to be with you both. So I'm also extending my gratitude. So thank you both so much for being here and of course for your work. And 
to start, I've asked if you could both read short passages from the opening of your books, which I think will give a helpful framework for listeners, especially listeners who haven't engaged with the books yet. So Yawanda, I wonder if we can start with you. If you'd like to set up the reading, please feel free. Otherwise, if you just want to launch into it, that's wonderful too. I think I'll launch into it, trusting that it'll all work out. Great. When the policeman had started talking, Mojisola had wanted to interrupt and say, but I'm on my way as if she wasn't the mother of a dead child, rather a mother fractionally late, delayed, but on her way. Just that morning, she decided she would phone Yinka and tell her that she was coming. Not ask permission. She would say, send me the address. I'm your mother. As if that was a magic word to set the world right ways again. Ma'am, are you there? The policeman had asked. Did you hear me? Yes, she'd heard. The person she'd made was no more. For many days afterwards, she'd wanted a gun. Never having considered herself a killer, suddenly she'd lusted for blood. She collected all her anger at herself, at Yinka, at Titus, at the world that won't wait, and held it at the base of her throat. It hurt to talk. And she was brimstone. If she'd owned a gun, people would be dead by now. But common sense prevailed. The world is better off without a gun-toting Mojisola Wulabi. No, violence was not the answer. Instead, here she is, come to see, to check. She cannot really afford to come away, but nonetheless, she has done so. It's her savings she will use and whatever Titus supposes he ought to deposit into her account. For now, he is confused and beseeching, but if he becomes resentful, she may get nothing. She's momentarily bitter about a lifetime as a housewife, but her grief overtakes her regret. It is, after all, the more pressing of the two. Thank you, Yoande. I think it really sets up the book so excellently for this conversation. Um, Bongani, can we move to you before we, before we dive into some questions about an excerpt from the introduction to our Ghost for Once people? Thank you again, Catherine, and thank you, Yawande, for that beautiful reading. And I'm really excited about an unusual grief, which I haven't read yet. So, yeah, thank you again. Um, So this is from the introduction. While this is not a book about the pandemic, there's been no escaping its mark on our world. In April 2020, when my father was diagnosed with cancer and admitted to hospital, I couldn't travel home. Mary Watson writes in the essay which opens this collection, Neither Here Nor There. Both Ireland and South Africa were in lockdown, and even if I could, it would have been irresponsible to travel 10,000 kilometers to visit a sick man in the middle of a pandemic. The writers in this anthology wrestle with the idea of death and dying, seldom an easy task. In a breathtaking memoir, Men We Reaped, which chronicles the deaths of five black men, including a younger brother, Jasmine Ward writes, To say this is difficult is understatement. Telling this story is the hardest thing I've ever done. But my ghosts were once people, and I cannot forget that. Ward's memoir shapes the heaviness of grief into something readers can find meaning in. This book attempts to do something similar. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I want to pick up on the question of, of titles and titling, which, Bongani, you touch on in that excerpt. Because language and naming are such vital themes in both of these books and the journey into 
how we name grief begins for the readers at least with the names of the books themselves and Bongani you referenced the title of course our ghosts um, you know in that reading but I'm interested to know a bit more about the backstory to that sort of how you arrived at Jasmine Ward's quote and and why you settled on that as as the container or the kind of platform for the book uh, so beginning like throughout the working working on this project the actual title or the title at the beginning was the end of the story because it was meant to be about writers writing about death or writers thinking about which it still is writers thinking about grief and mourning and and death so the end of the story like that this is the that was the working title that uh, I had throughout but then in the midst of putting the book together, I was also reading quite a lot, like reading, yeah, reading poetry, reading other novels or uh, nonfiction books that spoke to the theme. And Jasmine Ward's memoir is one which I came back to again and again, again and again. And if if we do get a moment, I'd love to read the poem, which which the title of her memoir is Men We Reaped. But that mm. comes from a poem by Harriet Tubman. And if we get an opportunity, I'd love to read that because it's such an exquisite poem. And then, but just that phrase that this is the hardest thing that I've ever had to, I've ever had to do, but my ghost for once people, and I cannot forget that, just seemed to just like speak to all of the essays and the poetry and the pieces that are in the book. And it just, it just felt right. It just, yeah, I don't know if that's a good enough answer, but really, mm. yeah. Mm. And the ghosts, to my mind at least, sort of speaks so much to time, which I also really want to ask you about in a moment, but the kind of the haunting nature of grief, that it never quite goes away, but comes to us in these in these waves. For sure. Yawande, can we turn to an unusual grief and, and what the title holds for you and how, how you settled on it? Yes, and I mean, just to come off the back of what Bongani was saying, because there's something really profound captured in that phrase, our ghosts were once people, because it, and you touched on time, Catherine, but it, it, I feel like it really points at the conundrum of loss, mm-hmm. that our ghosts were once mm-hmm. people, but, but we're so confounded by this, and how are they now ghosts, and mostly they remain people for us, or they just remain ghosts, and we can't, be with the two-ness of it. So there is something very poignant about that. I love that title. Um, mm. My title, I, you know, there, there were many titles. <laughs> and this is what we ended on. Um, yeah, so, and that is really my relationship to titles. Whatever I normally write the book to is very seldom what makes it to the final cut, usually because an editor or someone who knows better than me, I suppose, says, this is not really going to work, you know, Andy. So, um, but Unusual Grief, we came to, I, I think there was a time I wanted to call it um, The Unusual Grief of Mojisola Awolabi, which, which was, okay, you know, maybe go easy on people with titles. Um, but what was important to convey in the title is the, a sense of strangeness. Mm. The sense of strangeness that, that, that is the quality of Mojisola's experience of grief. And I mean, very early on, the book was going to be about loss, but it was also going to be about desire and pleasure. Um, and the unusual part is is trying to speak to that aspect of Mujusala's grief. Mm-hmm. 
I think time speaks to both what you've touched on now, you wonder the strangeness of, of grief. But maybe uh, before we get there, Bongani, would you like to, why don't you jump in now with uh, the reading of the poem? It w- would be wonderful to hear it. Okay, cool. Thank you. I found it. And thanks, Yawande, as well. And thank you again, Catherine. I'm known as the official thanker in many <laughs> places. So forgive me for the, for the, <laughs> for the multiple thank yous. <laughs> but so here goes. And this is Harriet Tubman. Um, we saw the lightning and that was the guns. And then we heard the thunder and that was the big guns. And then we heard the rain falling and that was the blood falling. And when we came to get in the crops, it was dead men that we reaped. I was just like, whew, it's mm. really haunting. Incredible poem. Thank you for reading it. Like I said, I really w- wanted to touch on time and it draws on that hauntingness that you've just spoken about, Bongani, and um, the strangeness that you were referring to, Yawande. So much has been said in the time of the pandemic about time, right? You know, the indistinguishability of one day into the next and the constant refrain of death and the repetition of Zoom meetings and isolations um, and how all of that has distorted our sense of time. And as I was reading both books, I was reminded of the fact that grief, you know, whether, whether or not it sits inside of the pandemic, does something strange to time. There's that observation by Della Guala in her story, which is called The Postbox on the Corner of Eternity, and that goes for one's people. And she says, and this is a quote from her story, she says, that's the thing about grief. It feels like nothing has happened in the world, but to you, everything has happened, and it keeps happening every moment of every damn day which really evokes the ghosts we've been speaking about. And so Bongani, following on from that quote, or wherever you want to jump in, maybe with a reference to a different story, but is there a particular aspect of the strange relationship between grief and time that that stood out for you as you were editing this book? Wow, thank you again for the question. As you were asking the question, I was already thinking that you know, like there's always that distinction between physical time as in at the moment we're recording at 1418, this is where we are and this is the physical time. But then that psychological time of human beings is something else. And one of the things I, I think maybe let me give a practical example that's like they don't always cohere that that physical time and the psychological time of human beings don't always cohere even at the best of times even right now in recording the podcast i might move forward to a different time um but i think just to echo what you've been saying like i think the amazing thing about working with all of the different writers was just seeing that the things that people still uh they still had difficulty with even after 20 years even after 10 years even after 5 years like very few stories apart from Mary's story, like happened in 2020. For me, a line that really got me in an unusual grief is um, it's from the scene of the small memorial that's held for Mojisala's daughter, Yinka, and who has died by suicide. And there's this line that invites us into Mojisala's very precarious state of being in that moment. And it goes... She tries not to sound hurt, but hurt is all that she is forever now. A mass of hurt, a big wound in the world, open and susceptible. And that blurring of 
time periods in the forever now is what struck me most, I think. It holds so much in just those those two words, forever now, the, the sense that for Mojisala, there's no way of telling when the excruciating pain of now will stop bleeding into the long stretch of forever. Yeah, so I was really interested to ask what you wanted to capture about what grief does to time in this moment, perhaps, but also just more generally in, in the book itself. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I, th- I think there's also something particular about the grief of a parent mm. um, and then the grief of a parent with a child who took their life, right? So there's these layers to Mujisola's... It's like there's death and then there's the loss of a child and then there's the loss of a child who made this very painful choice, at least painful for those that remain, mm. maybe relief mm. for the, the person that's making that choice. And so it's the, 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 the part of the agony of Mojisola is just that she has to live that. And um, I think there's a place where she also says she, she won't die. You know, her charge is to live it because death would would cut short the suffering that she's going through. But but she'll live. She will, you know, she'll live. She'll live till she's 80 or 90. And every, everyone else gets to die. Um, but she, her charge is to live this and suffer it. Um, and I, it makes me think of my grandma who, bless her, but she would send a Bayesian saying where she would say, you, you, you won't die and you can't live properly. So, mm. so, so you're, you're, you're like you're screwed, basically, mm. you know. Um, and I think for Mojisola, she's, she's caught up in that sort of, it, it's almost like a prison. And the story is her trying to just come to terms, even if not make peace, with the walls and the bars of the prison that, that she understands is now her life. That, that's, that, this is the shape of it. Um, she can't get out of that. Death would get her out of it. But she's in it. And, and she's clear from very early on that it's, complete and final and that it will continue so time it's so hard to articulate the ways in which time creep up when it comes to loss and if i speak from my own experience some ways the story kind of is is, uh, turned on its head Um, when i was yinka's age i lost my mom she was ill so i was about 23 and um almost 20 years later when I think of the 20 years of that grief, I notice that there are times it's been acute and times it's been less acute. But there, there's not this sense that grief neatly tapers away over mm-hmm. time. The, the, this is this myth that we love and it's prosaic, and, but it's not true, I don't think. At least it hasn't been for me. Mm-hmm. It's dynamic. Something happens and suddenly the, it's like, you know, magnet filings or whatever, you know, those things. Like I notice if something painful happens, then I miss my mother extra suddenly because pain wants company or something, you know, it's, it's so, so time and suffering, are, it's a very, I think, uh, imprecise and um, hard to measure relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not this regular progression, the way we understand time, one, you know, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, the sense of progression. It's not like that. It's much, much more unruly. 
I find. Mm. And do you think writing for both of you, do you think writing about loss has made you reflect differently on your own encounters with death? And Bongani was going to ask you the same about, well, editing stories, of course, compiling these stories and, and writing your own piece. Do you think it has made you reflect, like, Yuwana, you were talking earlier about, you know, my own experience. Do you think it's made you sit differently with that experience? There's a lovely word that Yuwanda said about imprecise, that there's this expectation that this thing happened five years ago, that it should stay five years ago. But depending on where I'm at, sometimes it feels so close. It feels as if it's, it's just happened. It was. It is just yesterday. And this is what I was trying to kind of get to as well with some of the writers, with Paulas, even though they were writing about incidents. So in physical time, which was so far back in their own lives, you got the sense that this is something that was just as close as the breath is to your nostrils. You know, it's just so, it's just happened. And I guess, yeah, and I love that phrase that you just used there, Yoande, about it being in, imprecise. And another word that you use that sometimes it's acute and sometimes it's, I don't know what the opposite of acute is. <laughs> let's just say inacute. Oh, let's just say <laughs> inacute. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. <laughs> and And then... And then to Catherine's uh, the follow-on question about writing and, and death and also editing the stories, I think I'll try and speak from my own experience, which is, whew, this is the thing, like the most of the writers, like all of the writers here, like there's nothing I could ever say to them about writing. Absolutely, absolutely nothing. And some of them, yeah, like they just like, for instance, Mary Watson is, is a K Prize winner, has multiple novels. I, I would not be able to hold a candle. <laughs> so but what I viewed the job as being is that is trying to create a frame for you to be able to speak about this thing which has just happened, but you don't know how to put it into words. And because this thing is so difficult, this task of of writing this thing, which is so close to me, and I'm going to need you in this process, and I'm going to need you to just to hold me up because I don't know how to get from A to B, because the pain of it is like, is, is whenever you write about this, by the way, I should tell the listeners that Catherine also has a piece in the book. So, <laughs> so some corrupt tender processes <laughs> happened into <laughs> us being together here. <laughs> Slightly biased reviewer on board. Yeah, and she has a dog in the fight. But to get to the question, it's just that this thing that I want to do this thing and I'm going to, I need you to trust me that your story, not just your story, but actually your people who you're bringing to this project are coming into a really safe environment, firstly. And in this difficulty of writing this thing, we need each other. And I'm going to be able to tell you or you're going to be able to tell me as I'm writing that maybe do it like this, but we can do it lovingly. I, I mean, I think what you're pointing to there is also just the, that, that relationship between the editor and the writer. And I mean, particularly that you would have had to navigate several relationships. I mean, I was thinking of your question, Catherine, of what the writing does to one's own feelings and thoughts and experience of loss. Mm. And what I, I, again, I I don't think this necessarily answers the question head on, but what it made me think of was the gap between the person at the point of loss. So for me, it's, uh, let's say the various people I've 
sadly lost. I think my mother would have been the closest person to me. That was 20 mm. years ago. 20 years, right? So much has happened for me in that time that hasn't happened to her in this experience of life, in this corporeal, you know, this embodied experience. And mm. I think what thinking and dwelling on that loss or that experience has felt like is really, again, the, the sort of confusion of not knowing who she is in a way, because your, your memory is so old. Mm. You know, if she'd lived 20 years, she would be a different kind of person and would have, you know, shifted and changed and learned and grown. It's, it's a very odd thing that you, you find yourself doing, thinking what they would be like if they had lived, what kind of choices they would make, um, what would they say in this moment. Uh, I became a mother just over a year ago. What would that be like for to share that with her? You know, so I think I would say that's the sort of thing that has opened up for me in, 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 writing, in writing this book and in the relationship mm-hmm. to the loss of my mom. Just mm. that this, then you live, you invent this parallel universe where if they were here, this would happen, or if they were here, that would happen. Um, and it's, it's also an odd way of living, having that, these dual experiences. Mm, which again takes us back to like what you were saying earlier, you know, the conundrum of loss and the two-ness of it, that it's never one thing, and especially not in time, that it's existing on these sort of parallel planes. Bongani, you mentioned the frame, like creating a frame for the book as, and seeing that as your job as editor. So I'd love to dive into that question, which I think applies to both books. And so I was listening to an interview with Elizabeth Strout. It's quite an old interview, actually. I was listening to it recently. And she talks so animatedly about being surprised by her own characters, about decisions, for example, that Olive Kittredge, which is probably her most famous character, decisions that Olive makes that Elizabeth Stroud on some level doesn't see coming. Um, And it was quite fascinating to me to dwell on that. And I thought especially relevant in the context of grief, where there is the feeling sometimes of encountering ourselves outside of or, you know, apart from ourselves. Yeah, I wanted to delve into that in terms of creating characters in, in fiction writing, but Bongani, maybe we can start with you. I know the process is, of course, very different when it comes to compiling a book, um, but because it's you know primarily an anthology of nonfiction, but still there's definitely a way in which a collection, once all the pieces have been assembled, can assume a presence far greater than that frame that was originally conceived for it, right? That it takes, almost charts its own course in the world. And I wondered if that was the case for you in compiling it and now looking at what it is. Uh, Thank you, Catherine. So uh, it's quite a difficult question to take at 2.30. It's now time for my tea break. (laughs) (laughs) No. Sugar first, sugar and then answer. Yeah, no. I'll come back after research. Sorry. Um, 
But just to maybe to answer your question about the element of surprise and like I need to take a step back and to say that I love literary journals, I love magazines, like I'm I'm a pulp hit or if yeah, if those things still exist and if those kinds of people still exist in the age of the internet. And I particularly loved uh, literary journals that are they tend to be themed around one particular idea, one particular issue. And the thing that I loved about them, like I can even feel that kind of adrenaline uh, of going to the bookstore when I know a particular, I'm going to get this particular magazine. And just knowing and that, that feeling of reading it, of just being surprised consistently again and again. There's just so many ways people explore the same theme. Mm-hmm. That's what I was trying to kind of, or at least that's, what I was hoping that we were able to give to the reader with this particular book, just that that sense of like, I didn't even know I could think of this thing like that. So differences in tone, differences in sensibility, different in, in even ideas, even in levels of seriousness, like just that, uh, like a jazz band. That, that kind of layering that you're talking about, was that very deliberate from the beginning of the process of, of the kinds of stories that you wanted to invite into this book absolutely absolutely so like for instance like when you do anthologies maybe let me speak maybe in a south african context or generally like so for the most part all of the pieces are either going to be three thousand words in length so they're all going to be the same length for one and i've never actually liked that approach because sometimes some people have the ability to write long are better when they write long and other people's are better when they're compressed and so secondly also like there's also this thing where if it's a nonfiction anthology, then we can't have poetry, then we can't have photography. So it's quite rigid. So from the start, mm-hmm. I knew that we needed all of these things. They need to sit next to each other. And so I think like they work better if different forms of writing are stacked up against each other. So what happens when you put like a short story and then you put a poem and then you put like a, a really long essay, like, and then to let those things, because it becomes something else. And I love that energy of those things sparking up against each other. So from the get go, uh, it was already just an idea that A, the pieces were never going to be all of the same length and that they were going to be different modes. And yeah, so... Mm. I hope I've answered the, mm. <laughs> the question. You definitely have. Um, yeah, Wanda, can we return to that that point about about being surprised by one's own creation? Because I was very curious to know if you can relate to that sentiment that Elizabeth Strout refers to and whether the character of Mojisala in her journeying through grief developed in a way that seemed somehow beyond you. Yes, I love, I love, uh, I love that comment that you're sharing, and it, I do relate to it. I do, I, I, I you know, I, I'm one of those people. I, I remember I once did a, a, I don't know, fellowship or something like that, and I was given a, a like a, a guidance teacher, another writer, to guide me and be my supervisor. That's the word. And um, at the time, he advised me to write out my chapters, you know, write out all my chapters and chart my book from beginning to end. And you know, this is the way, you know, draw mm-hmm. each thing. And, and I very diligently went off to do that. And I did it um, because he'd asked me to, and I wanted to, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'm here, I'm learning, do it as an exercise. But I got terribly depressed afterwards, like truly so. And I, it took me a while to realize what had happened, which is that for whatever reason, the way I write and everyone's different, but the way I approach the work 
I need to be surprised. I didn't, I didn't want the, the, the written out chapters, the whole mm-hmm. outline that everyone goes on about wasn't really my access to, 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 to writing. It, it, it depressed me. And I think what the depression was uh, like, who wants to write a book that you know how it's going to end? You know, I, as weird as that might sound, like, what's the point? I want to be surprised. I, I don't, I don't want to know what the characters would do and wouldn't do. And so more specifically to an unusual grief, the two happened very closely together. There was a day I had to, after a conversation with my agent, and we'd sent, I think we'd sent the, a draft of the book out already, and, and it's a very much, uh, much earlier incarnation, gotten feedback, and then I had the conversation with the agent, and I, you know, and I realized a good 20,000 words of the book had to go, basically. And I remember I went to the script, I took, took it out, and I went to my couch and cried for a while. Um, but then, you know, then the day passes and then the next day and the next day. And somewhere in that kind of haze of making such a dramatic cut, I realized that Mujisala was kind of showing me, telling me, or I was realizing what her path had to be. And for those who haven't read it, but Catherine, you have, I mean, that was around the time where I didn't just skirt around the issue of Mujisala's sort of sexual awakening. I went straight, straight to the core of that thing and started researching kink and um, fetish uh, life. And, you know, and, and the book took on a kind of an energy that it didn't have. But, I'd, um, but that was a surprise. I didn't start the book thinking Mujisola is going to, you know, explore, you know, domination. Or I, I didn't start that way. I started knowing that she's stuck and she's had this massive loss, and through the book, we're going to work something out. So it's definitely the harder way to write, I think. I'd love to outline, because that's very sane, and very, mm-hmm. it, you could keep everything neat. This way, it's incredibly messy. Those 20,000 words, you know, those are words I'd written, and they're not in the book today. Mm. And that's really painful. But I'd gone down the wrong road. Mm. Perhaps an outline would have saved me from that, but in terms of my process... In some ways, the outline uh, makes it very neat and clinical, but takes the energy and the wildness out of the story, which which is, I guess, something that I just need to grapple with in my in my writing process. Mm. And the revelation of that must be something quite extraordinary to experience, the revelation of a character almost taking you by the hands and saying, this is who I'm going to be. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. But I mean, you, you pay for that extraordinariness. I mean, you, you pay for that. It's a real paralyzing fear that can take, take mm-hmm. over. I mean, Bongani and I have, you know, fellow writer, but I had the ridiculous privilege of supervising him. And we've both talked about like what it is to stare your, your novel or your short story or whatever your piece in the eye and, and contemplate, you know, I, I don't know what this is going to be. Hmm. And I've spent three years of my life with this thing. So, and I still don't know what it's going to be. And that's pretty scary for any sane person. You don't invest that amount of time and love and energy and care into something that you don't have some kind of guarantee hmm. that it would turn hmm. out. So, so absolutely. And I think, I think I've been lucky, but there would be books where you don't have that revelation. Hmm. And that's the book that lives under your right. bed. And it's like, okay, yes, three, three years down the line. Okay. Start again. Where the literary wilderness doesn't end in epiphany. It just ends in a... Yeah, yeah exactly. Not a bang, but a whimper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
but with if you if you get to it then yes you you drop to your knees and think that as i say for me it's religion yeah. you drop to your knees and just say you know thank you yeah i'll go with that yeah well the literary gods were definitely smiling upon you because it's an incredible process that mujisala undergoes okay so We've been talking a lot about the ways in which pain revisits us and, and grief revisits us in these, in these strange kind of distortions of time. But if, if you listen to any spiritual teachers or basically any persuasion or psychologists or people who practice meditation, something that you invariably come across is the necessity of sitting with pain, right? That it's a phrase that comes up a lot, that sitting with the irreconcilable rather than trying to outrun it or numb ourselves from it. And grief is the ultimate test of this, I think, you know, having to live with something that we can't undo. And I thought of this a lot in an unusual grief, but particularly as the novel draws to a close where we get a glimpse of Mojisala's unusual journey through grief coming or doesn't come to an end but it it comes to a brief resting point as she sits quite literally sits down with her pain um and then in our ghosts were once people i mean there are many examples to draw on but i think of malika um, and glovu's piece in which she reflects on her experience of stillbirth and but then there's this evocation of her daughter's spirit, you know, and as such an, a powerful example of, of of sitting with pain and not and not running from it. But yeah, this notion of sitting with discomfort, I think it means very different things to different people. Um, so I'm curious to know, as you wrote Yawande, and as you wrote and edited Bongani, what this idea of sitting with pain meant to you what it looks like to you. What I was thinking in, in some ways, uh, Catherine, quite literally, um, the the first time Mojisola encounters the reality of Yinka's death, she runs. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, she has some sort of episode, I guess, some sort of mm. mental episode and runs and runs and runs. And that always struck me. Actually, it was a friend who told me there was some news someone got on a phone and it was bad news. And what they did is they threw the phone away. And I was always struck by that description of this. You know, we, we, we're trying to say gravity isn't gravity. That's, your, that's the instinct when, when, when you hear of this news. No, no, mm-hmm. no. We're, but gravity is gravity and death is death. And so the sitting part, I think, is we can't win this particular fight. (laughs) You know, no one's going to win this one. Mm. And the sitting is just this quiet dawning that this is just, this is just it. And this is how you be with this. You you be with it. Because the other thing, which is instinct, you can't sustain that kind of resistance. You can't sustain a world in which you decide there's no gravity. You just can't sustain that very long. At some point, something happens and, you know, gravity exists after all. So the sitting is just the finding a way and a place to realize that this is actually just how it is. And I think that, for me, that 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 did feel really profound, um, this idea of sitting. 
it wasn't by design, but looking back now, it just feels like, oh, that's interesting that it worked out that way. And that, that I really fought for that end, oh, you know, but, but I, I, I felt really strongly that that, that, was, mm. that was it. That was how it would end. Mm. Um, just quickly, no, do you mean you fought with yourself or your editors or the, through the literary wilderness? Well, just with, with myself and some, sometimes if something isn't working, the editor, because, because we, this isn't an editor bashing occasion, the editor will draw that to your attention. Sometimes all they have to say is, I don't think this belongs. Mm. That has you fight for why it belongs and it could involve tweaking and editing so that when they go back to it, they're like, I see, it does belong. And there was that kind of interaction with the end where, where there's a point where, and I had to really fight with myself, write it in such a way and, and make sure that it belonged because it felt mm. important. Or well, as a reader, for me, it truly does belong. And it's hard to imagine how it could have ended any other way. It's such a perfect, brilliant, yeah, brilliantly executed ending. Thank you. That's great to hear. Thank you. Bongani, can we turn to you and this idea of what it means to sit with discomfort, or what, but really what it means to you and, and what did it mean to you in the process of, of editing this book? Wow. I, but first, I just want to say I could listen to you folks all day. Thank you so much. It's just like really it's so nourishing just listening to you both. And um, Catherine, if it's OK, I'm just going to read a tiny bit from Malika's essay just to kind of as a way to come back to your question. Please. Yeah, I'd love that. And so just the setup is uh, Malika Andlovu is a poet and a writer, and she's writing uh, about her experience of stillbirth. And there's just a, f a passage here, I think, which is really great, which speaks to the question you just asked. She says towards the end of the essay, we're invited to reconstitute ourselves every single day with every single breath. Even when you feel like dying would be the perfect solution. Our cells are continuously dying and regenerating themselves. In the mirror of so many people who have suffered greatly, I witness a certain kind of beauty emerging after life-shattering experiences they thought they would not survive. The beauty of Kintsukori, of mending broken pottery with gold. As she's talking about other women who've experienced stillbirth that she's worked with or has conversation with. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, also just the idea of sitting with pain is that I think pain can be transformed into other things. It's like the pain is there, but it can be transformed into other things which are destructive, like overeating or whatever the case may be, so that I can soothe this pain. But also this, it can be transformed into other things which are like helpful. And I think this book itself, or even more especially Unusual Grief, is like to say that I'm transforming this pain into some kind of beauty or something beautiful so that we can learn somehow to live with that loss together, you know? Like, I don't know if that makes sense, that it can be transformed as well into something else. I think, yeah, that's really, that was the process, because if I step back and I think about, like, for me, sort of like the seed for this book was, I've said this before, was the 2019 uh, killing of uh, a UCT student by the name of Uyinene, and, like, how devastating that period was, at least... I guess for many people, like, and I was in Rondebosch at the time and there was this period where nobody knew whether she was alive or dead, right? And the posters just kind of went up everywhere. And and then when the news broke, just seeing the devastation in 
complete strangers' faces, like just that complete heartbrokenness. So at least for me, I think about like starting for that moment of, I think many of us who've lost people are, are at that moment. And then when you write something, when you write something and you share it to the world, it's not that that pain goes away, but you found a way. I think this is what Malika's invitation is to the women that she works with, which is whether it's gardening or whether it's whatever creative endeavor you find a way to transform that pain into something that mm. can allow you to live with that loss in a, in a different kind of way. And maybe we can draw to a close with that. Such a powerful point about learning to live with loss together. You know, because a lot has been said over centuries probably about, about whether and how literature might function as a form of, of empathy. You know, this invitation that it holds out to us to step into the interior life and the consciousness of someone else. But even if empathy is too grand a claim, which which maybe it is in, in some cases, but there's at the very least, there's something about sharing in the pain of others that you've been speaking about that, you know, that makes us less alone. And yeah, I'd love to know from both of you as, as a final prompt or final question, about your engagement with empathy and, and this kind of less aloneness and, and how this informed or maybe even shaped the writing and the editing process. Tough question. I wanted to, so empathy, really thinking of that word empathy. I, what I hear when you say that is how we, how we don't carry the burden alone and that's something I think even Bongani mentioned in a previous conversation we were having about grief and mm. loss where there's this 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 share like the the sharing of this this burden and I think that's something I personally grapple with it's not because I think there are many times when grief feels incredibly personal and singular even if other people have lost as well or, or, or you, or you even share the loss because of the, the different relations mm. and intersections. It's also at times felt quite singular, right? Um, and so, and so quite lonely, but even by necessity. Mm. Um, but I, but and that is then in contrast with a kind of an ethos that I would like to have at least that that we do share, and that we do empathize, and we hold the weight of something together and that lessens the burden and makes it easier and makes passage easier. Um, and I think there's a bit of a tenuous relationship between those two ideas. Neither one has to be more right than the other. They probably both could live, you know, together. And maybe somewhere in the in the novel, to go back to the novel, I mean, Mojisala kind of has this uh, relationship with Zelda, who's the uh, Yinka's landlady. And it's sort of a friendship, but not... Um, they're both so singular, such singular women, such so, so isolated in different ways, and and yet they they also connect. They also have tenderness mm. somewhere amidst everything else. So I think I think I'm really interested in the kind of the tension between those two mm. things, the empathy, but also the the necessity for kind of a a, a singular experience of something incredibly painful and just the that you can't escape that. Mm, and the solitude, like you say, even if you do share, even if it's siblings sharing the, the 
the death or the grief of a parent or or friends sharing the grief of another friend it is there is both a um, a sharedness and a specificity there to how to how the grieving is felt and how the weight sits in the person yeah it seems so and there's this tenuous relationship between those two you kind of toggle back and forth perhaps mm. I was thinking about it not so much from an individual perspective but from a societal perspective in the sense that you know there I think this is of course this is something that we talk about that not not all lives are valued equally mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. I remember that there's a there's a time when I lived in in Woma state and I hope I'm going to find a way to kind of make all of these points cohere I remember it was a Saturday morning and I was walking down Kaisenkrat Road past the old District 6 and I remember that I saw a group of homeless people there were about 5 or 6 and then there's a one guy at the head of that group of 5 or 6 was holding a bible and then when I looked close I saw there was a dead man covered with is it tarpaulin is that how you pronounce it covered with kind of tarpaulin and the buses were going through and like literally somebody on the side of the road his life had expired there and i just kind of remember just walking into town and it was like one of the strangest day and then i remember on ruland street is that a catholic church that's on that's close to parliament mm-hmm. and i remember that same saturday because it was drizzling and i remember seeing i think a father had passed away and these were this was a white family and so these three young men it was almost like small bear middle bear big bear were standing next to this hearse the coffin was inside and these brothers all of them I'd say the oldest is might be 20 it was such a dignified thing and they're all kind of weeping and sort of part of this challenge of becoming a better society is in acknowledging that also all of even that man on the side of the road who probably does have who only has these six strangers that he calls a family is worth mourning right and i think that's I think yeah because I I feel like we live in a society that doesn't do that that doesn't because of historical reasons like the every time sort of like every time the Americana massacre itself is evoked do these people also not have names you know and sometimes they are evoked only as political grammar as a political argument when people's entire lives are deployed mm-hmm. as a political argument and you think to yourself is this not another injustice mm-hmm. that we're doing i think also of like the xenophobic attacks in 2008 right that somebody dies in johannesburg but there's no kind of memorial or anything of that nature to just say like this terrible thing happened here can we just maybe pause for a moment acknowledge it because that idea of memorializing that thing means we're trying to find a way to live with it rather than just sort of like sideline things so how do we from a societal level what happens when you do not acknowledge particular deaths as having happened what does that do to us as a society and that's where i guess that's the idea of the empathy what i'm trying to get to that's all i was trying to say i mean maybe you think of unmonable bodies as well that article but are you saying like who's who's like the sort of cachet like certain grief is on the front page certain grief is on no page mm-hmm. yeah exactly mm-hmm. i i think we do have to come to a close but you know despite the the heaviness of the, of the topic and the themes that we've been speaking about today it's been such a joy to be with you both and um really such a privilege for me 
So thank you. It's been wonderful to be in the company of both of you. And thank you to everyone listening. And thank you again for these incredible books. One which we already have access to and one which, as we said, is coming very soon. So thank you both. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Yoande. Thank you, Catherine and Open Book. Yeah, much appreciated. For listening, everyone. Our Ghost for Once People, edited by Bongani Corner, is currently available at the Book Lounge. The Book Lounge is running a pre order special on An Unusual Grief by Yoanda Omotoso, where you can get 15% off your purchase. The special runs until the 8th of December. To pre order this book, just email booklounge at gmail.com or go to their website, booklounge.co.za. Thank you so much to Bongani, Catherine, and Yoande for making time to record this episode. Thanks also to Frankie Murray, who curated the series with me. And thanks to Andre Burnett, our in-house editor, who also assisted me with the production of this podcast. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, as well as the support of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. The Heinrich Bull Foundation has been actively promoting the consolidation of democracy and human rights, advancing gender equality, and taking action to prevent the destruction of the environment in Southern Africa since 1989. The Foundation's work in Southern Africa consists of four programs, democracy and social justice, human rights and gender justice, sustainable development, and international politics and dialogue. Until next time, this is the Open Book Podcast Series. <laughs>